This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Fallout continues over a massive college admissions cheating scandal that has involved 50 people, including several well-known executives and two Hollywood actresses. The United States Attorney for Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling, called Operation Varsity Blues the largest college admissions scam ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. The case involves several high-profile universities, including Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, and the University of Southern California, amongst others. The parents, trying to get their kids into these schools, paid colleges uh, admissions, or I should say paid college admissions advisor William Singer around $25 million over seven years, starting in 2011. He used some of the money to pay off coaches and standardized testing officials to rig the process. Singer this week pled guilty to conspiracy charges for racketeering and money laundering, as well as obstruction of justice. Several coaches have been fired or put in on administrative leave for their part in this. Although this is mostly involving lower profile sports such as water polo and crew, the NCAA now says it is also investigating how the recruitment was done. Critics are pointing at how wealthy people have for years gamed the system legally to get their kids into elite schools through legacy admissions and large donations. So could this change any of that? With more on this, we're joined here in studio by Julian Jonker, who is a assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School, and joining us on the the phone, Sean Harper, who is the provost professor at the Rossier School of Education and the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. He's also founder and executive director at the US, uh, USC Race and Equity Center. Julian, great to see you again. Thanks to be here. Thank you. Sean, great to have you back with us. Great to be back with you. Thank you. Sean, I, I want to start with you and, and kind of get your temperature as to as what is going on at USC in the wake of, of all of these uh, these pronouncements coming out by the Department of Justice. Well, many of us are obviously shocked and disappointed by what has happened here and elsewhere. Um, you know, on the one hand, we're relieved that it's not just us. Uh, we've certainly had our unfair share of scandals recently. But on the other hand, you know, we're embarrassed and disappointed to be in a cadre of elite institutions that have, you know, been taken advantage of in this way. I will tell you that um, I do believe my colleagues in the admissions office, uh, they were not complicit um, in this uh, scandal, um, but instead that, you know, it really was uh, happening mostly with individuals um, in our athletics department, not the department as a whole. Uh, so there is at least some relief there that this was not an institutional activity, but instead, you know, a bad actor or two. Has the leadership of the school at this point made any statement about what they need to do moving on in the short term? Yes, we have an interim president, Wanda Austin, who is amazing, and she has written a letter to our campus community that at this point has effectively gone viral. Um, I saw a a summary of the news coverage yesterday and, you know, several dozen, perhaps at this point, hundreds of news outlets have picked it up. 
You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for joining us. We're joined on the phone by Julian Jonker, or I should say in studio by Julian Jonker of the Wharton School, Sean Harper of the University of Southern California. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Julian, I, I, I don't think for... A lot of people, what has come out in the news is necessarily a surprise, but what I think it is drawing a lot of attention is the fact that it does highlight something I think has been going on with universities for a long time, is that those people of means that have the ability to do something like this are willing to try and do this. That's right, Dan. I mean, I think it's worth reflecting on how much attention this story has captured, not just with those of us who are involved in campus life, but throughout our society. And it really picks up two themes that I think define public life at the moment. The one is a pervasive distrust of elite institutions. And the second is a belief, whether people endorse it or not, a belief that money is kind of the universal solvent, and those really come together. And so if you look at the kind of commentary that we've seen in the news media, on social media over the past day or two, um, What this is really sparking is a conversation about whether this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are, to use William Singer, the person at the center of the scandal, to use his metaphor, there's a front door through which students come. uh, They show their test scores. They show their ability in other fields of life. There's a back door through which some wealthy students have been able to come by making donations to colleges. And then Singer was providing a side door for them. And the conversation at the moment is really about whether the existence of that side door shows something about the front door and the way that works, whether through being able to pay for tutoring and test prep and all sorts of things, the wealthy just have a systematic advantage in admissions. And really the the testing part of it, I think, is to a degree kind of the new part of the equation here, because this is my opinion, is that the testing process itself has been something that has been relatively unscathed, not really you know, seeing significant issues in the past. Here we are seeing with the potential paying off of people that were running these tests for students, another area that really needs to be looked at. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I do want to emphasize, and this potentially gets lost in the uh, conversation that you see in the news media. Um, I want to emphasize the fact that what was going on in the scam was really quite distinctive. Yeah. Uh, so even if one is worried about the kind of uh, extra footholds that uh, the wealthy have, um, you know, bribing test admissions officials or bribing college officials to uh, uh, get students in um, really is uh, not just illegal. It's it's flouting the law. It's kind of knowing that one is skirting the rules. Um, And so there really is something, I think, ethically distinctive here. Uh, But at the same time, I think this uh, does raise an interesting conversation about whether standardized test scores are really a good heuristic for raw potential of students. Is there a way in which what we really see, the the pervasive use of tutoring, uh, the ability of uh, wealthier students to take tests repeatedly means that they are able to get coached through the system in a way that poor students do not. Sean, your thoughts? Sure. Yeah, I agree with Julian that um, there is something distinctive about this particular scandal, and I think that it is the magnitude of it. Dan, you might recall that in 2017, I published a book, Scandals in College Sports. Yep. yep. And 
each chapter in that book is about a different scandal that had occurred at a college or university. And it wasn't just football and men's basketball teams. There were, you know, sports like soccer and baseball and others, right? Um, so what strikes me about this particular scandal is that it really is a cocktail of things that we have seen happen in other places as perhaps one-offs or, you know, it was like one dimension, you know, cheating on tests or, you know, gaming the system to admit student athletes or uh, taking bribes and, and so on. But this one, you know, really seems to have brought many of those scandals together all in one. And that's the thing that I think makes it, you know, really stand out from some of the other high-profile cases. How do you think that then the schools are going to need to move forward uh, with these students that, that are involved in this? And, and as a lot of people are, are now hearing, that some of the students knew what was going on. Other instances, the students did not know what was going on, Sean. Well, Dan, I will tell you that having been a professor now uh, for 16 years, at two elite universities, Penn and USC. Um, one thing I know for sure is when someone plagiarizes in a thesis or a doctoral dissertation, their degree is rescinded. Um, I think that same standard has to be held for someone who cheated to gain admission to a university. Right. So for those who have graduated, I feel very strongly that their degrees should be rescinded. And for those who are currently students, I do think they should be expelled. Julian? I think that's right. I believe, and Sean might be able to correct me here, but I believe that UCLA and USC have both taken steps to um, either suspend or to revoke admission of the students who are involved in in the scandal. And I think that's right. There's a certain amount of talk about whether the students are innocent or whether they were complicit in this case. And it does seem that for a large number of them, they were simply unknowing that their parents were taking part in this. This, by the way, might, uh, for some people, kind of highlight another feature of the more systematic way in which uh, the... the, um, uh, the wealthy are able to gain entitlements and admissions processes, which is often students are simply unaware of the way in which their backgrounds give them a leg up. Um, that said, the fact that someone is, as it were, innocent, unknowing of the way in which they got in doesn't change the fact that they're undeserving of the place. And I think uh, yeah. the colleges really do need to take steps here to show that these places are being awarded on the basis of, of desert. And, and that is par- part of the issue as well, because uh, the discussion of who is getting into college, who is most deserving to be into college, continues to be, I think, an important question that needs to be asked. And for these students who were able to gain an advantage from this particular practice, there are just as many students who missed out on this opportunity because of the, the fraud that occurred. I think that's right. So there's been a certain amount of talk about kind of who is the victim of uh, a scam like this. And I think in the first instance, the victims are the students who would have gotten places but for the scam. Um, were the universities victims? I'm not sure that I'd want to go that far. I think really the the, the, the next victim in this is public confidence. Right. Again, coming back to that idea that as we've seen, you know, in this country throughout the world, there's a kind of note of populism in the air. And I think what that really amounts to is uh, a degree of scam 
skepticism about our institutions and a degree of skepticism about whether meritocratic institutions really are meritocratic. Um, I think that's the victim here. What we as um, people in universities need to do is to really fight for this idea that what we reward is raw talent, perseverance, Mm -hmm. grit, character. And we do that both at the admissions uh, level and once students are here. So once getting into college, one is not guaranteed of a continued place in college. One must do the work. Sean? Yeah, I completely agree with everything that Julian just said. I think that is spot on. One thing that I want to pick up um, from uh, Julian's very thoughtful remarks, uh, there was a mention of entitlement. Um, there is a piece of this scam that I, that I don't think is being talked about enough. Dan, as you know, my work focuses largely on racial equity. Right. There are some inescapably racialized dimensions to this particular situation, um, that I think are worthy of our consideration. Um, you know, I think of this as a trifecta of whiteness meaning that more than 80% of college admission officers are white and the overwhelming majority of admissions directors and deans of admission are white. 88% of NCAA head coaches across all divisions are white. I have not seen the full roster of parents and families who you know, took advantage of Singer's uh, scam Um, But I am going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to do it very confidently, and guess that the overwhelming majority of those people are white. Not because white people have bad ethics. That's not it. But it is the way that wealth and race commingle in America and the disproportionate um, way in which um, wealth, you know, uh, falls along racial lines. So I'm guessing that most of these people are white. Um, so there, there is a way that, you know, whiteness becomes systematic um, in gaming a system like college admission. There's this other thing that I've been thinking a lot about, um, picking up on Julian's point about entitlement. It does seem to me that there's this sense of white entitlement to elite institutions. The thing is, there are nearly five thousand college and colleges and universities across the United States. If your test scores and high school GPA are not high enough to qualify you for admission to Penn or USC or other schools that are highly selective like ours, that's okay. Right. You know, there are hundreds, thousands even, community colleges and thousands of regional state universities that are fairly open access. Those places provide opportunities for folks who, you know, want a shot at higher education. But it seemed to me that these particular parents uh, didn't see those as suitable fits for their children. They felt a sense of entitlement to the best, the so-called best institutions. And, you know, I think that there is something about that that is, you know, frankly, incredibly racist. It is I'm not calling the individual people racist, but they right. do participate in a form of structural racism um, that is wrapped in white entitlement. 
I think that's right. I, I just want to second Sean's comments here. Uh, there was a great piece of reporting in the New York Times this morning uh, looking at uh, black high school students at a charter school in uh, Kansas City. Uh, and um, they were just being interviewed on their views on the issue. And you see the sense of um, despair, really, given yeah. the amount of work and given the obstacles they already face. And then seeing people getting kind of um, really a, fr- a free ride here. I think you mentioned, Sean, a moment ago about the athletics element to this. And obviously the NCAA, Sean, has had a variety of incidents that it has had to deal with over the years. They have uh, obviously a bribery uh, uh, case that is going on right now against a variety of, of basketball coaches. But the unique part of this is some of the sports that are involved in these particular instances of fraud. And and I mentioned at the top, water polo, uh, crew, uh, soccer, even sailing. Uh, are you know These are coaches that I would imagine probably in some cases are not paid a lot. But again, they are using their ability as a coach and potentially the priority nature that they might have to get somebody into a school with a financial benefit. Yeah, you know, when we... My co-author, Jamel Donner, and I um, were selecting the cases for our Scandals in College sports book. Um, We only had room to cover 22 of them. We were very deliberate about not having just high-profile football and men's basketball scandals. I mean, we could have done an entire book just on men's basketball scandals, for example. But we knew that there were other scandals in other sports, including women's sports, that had not gotten, you know, the kind of attention that, you know, many of the other high-profile scandals did. So, in other words, um, you know, this is not the first water polo scandal, for example, uh, but I do think that, you know, perhaps it's our first time hearing in a mainstream, highly visible kind of way about, you know, scandals that happen in these other kinds of sports. I I think that it is because of, you know, the public's fascination with revenue-generating sports and the ones that we see on television, you know, March Madness and bowl games and that stuff, right? That those are the ones that people think mostly about and that, you know, journalists even play a role in, you know, not giving proper attention to, you know, unethical behaviors and practices that occur in, you know, some of the lesser-known sports. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. I guess, Sean, this, this also, we need to focus on the company that Mr. Singer was running and the services that he was providing and... What is the oversight with these particular types of companies, uh, if there is any, uh, to prevent this type of activity from occurring again? I have no idea. Um, yeah, <laughs> I usually have answers to your questions. I, I, but, it, I, now, but honestly, that, that that is a thing that surprises me that there are companies like this one. Um, you know, I certainly know that there are these tutoring and test prep companies. And I know about the role that the AAU plays where, you know, some of those coaches and mentors, you know, really become de facto agents 
for young high school student athletes and you know some of them have participated in schemes to for lack of a better word sell these student athletes to particular universities but i had no idea that there was an operation like singers that that was the thing that really surprised me julian yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we should be careful not to uh, kind of uh, tarnish the entire test prep industry, although once again, there is this question about how people get systematic advantages through the existence of a test prep industry and their ability to pay for it. But clearly what was happening in Singer's case was really quite distinctive in its illegality and in its brazenness. But there's a worry here that I think is if you let it sink in is a really corrosive worry, which is just that money will find a way. Yeah. No matter how we set the system up, money will find its way through it. So how does one begin to prevent that? On the one hand, what we really need is a is a kind of a change in our cultural ethos as a society. We need to see that what's important at the end of the day is not just getting into the school, which then acts as a signal for future employers, or acts as a signal of your status and so on. What really matters is that you uh, uh, work for your achievements and through your achievements show your good character. Now, it's easy to talk in those sorts of grand terms. How does yeah. one actually achieve that cultural change? I don't know. Um, uh, but there really is a concern here that um, uh, uh, what we're seeing with the way, not just the way that William Singer, the, the kind of mastermind acted here, but the way that parents acted. I mean, think about the uh, – uh, think about this as an act of parenting. Think about the message that these parents are sending to their children. Yeah. Um, what they're saying is it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you behave. It doesn't matter what your goals are. Um, really what matters is what's in the bank accounts, and we will get you whatever you desire. Right. And that, and that partly that ethos that you talk about, though, that does have to play out at the university level. And right. it has to occur throughout the university, not just only in the athletics departments, but in admissions in the, the, the uh, you know, as many parts of the university as possible that the money will not sway a decision on whether or not that student is worthy or not, depending on their scores, on their activities, whatever it might be, of being a part of a particular university community. I think that's yes. a, that. Go yeah, for it, that's exactly right. Um, you know, Dan, this is my first time being in a conversation with Julian. You should you should bring us back together um, <laughs> often. Um, you know, I, I think that Julian is exactly right. I want to pick up on this notion of money will find a way. Um, and I'm going to, at least in my own way, um, make a, a gentle revision here and say that money and whiteness uh, will always find a way. You know, the thing that we're talking about uh, concerning universities, it starts far, far earlier with, you know, like educational talent. Um, the way that I'm thinking about this is the segregated nature of schooling in America. Um, I really appreciate that Julian um, called attention to that New York Times piece with the students in, in the charter schools. You know, our schools in the U.S., our K-12 schools, are just about as racially segregated now as they were before the passage of Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, right. which was supposed to integrate schools. And 
it's the way in which, again, race and wealth tend to commingle in our in our country. So, in other words, wealthy white people get to send their kids to very elite private preparatory schools with lots of resources. Um, so it's not that those kids were born more talented than, say, black and Latino and lower income Asian American students, but it's that they were born into wealth and that their parents were able to buy their admission to elite private preparatory schools um, that, you know, then become a pathway or a railroad, if you will, to elite higher education. So it's a system that continually feeds itself. And, you know, for me, I, I am thinking about those young people in that article that Julian mentioned who are working upstream. They're working very hard despite being poor, despite, you know, having working class families um, and being in lower resource schools. They are working so hard to get into college and get into the best colleges that they can. Um, but yet, you know, there are these others who've had every advantage in the world afforded to them yeah. by their parents and by their elite private preparatory schools who, you know, still couldn't cut it, but yet still feel, you know, a real sense of, of, of entitlement. So, yeah, money and whiteness will definitely always find its way. Joy? And once again, I agree with Sean. Um, one should add to this, really, what is at stake here? So, um, uh these schools are potentially a mechanism for upward mobility in a society that I think is becoming increasingly stratified. Yeah. Now, for the wealthy students, in fact, it looks as if some of these schools are superfluous. It looks as if their incomes will remain high, uh, as high as they were uh, potentially if they had not gone to those schools. Um, but for uh, individuals like those at the Kansas City School, um, this really is a game changer yeah. for them and for their communities, for their family, for their immediate families, um, and for those who they perhaps go on to um, serve in their later lives. So what we're really seeing here, what is at stake, is you know not just the well-being of a few individuals, but really whether these schools continue to be um, a kind of a, 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 a mechanism for de-stratifying our society. Great uh, having yeah. you here. Thanks, Julian. All the best. Thank Sean, you, Diana. Thank you, Sean. Sean, great to have you with us today, as always. Thank you, sir. Likewise. Thank you both. Thank you. Julian Jonker from here at the Wharton School, Sean Harper at the University of Southern California. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 